about him. Psalm 89, verse 7. Truly, it is a majestic thing that we can come together and exalt the name of God and to have him indeed in reverence as we look forward to a consideration of song to surround the table and even to a consideration of his holy and divine will. It is to that event that I would turn your attention with me now. As you noticed in the bulletin, the subject for tonight would in fact surround the title that I've placed on the wall to my left. Isn't it interesting as one considers the various characters revealed in the Word of God that if there's practically a limitless supply of information and material, an almost limitless supply of good examples and also some that were not so good. Last month, you might remember, we turned our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 14 and learned something about that wise woman of Tekoa. For this month, let us consider a lesson drawn from the New Testament and perhaps devote some attention to one of the lesser known of the Lord's apostles, namely that, that gentleman named Andrew. For the next few minutes tonight, I would encourage you to look with me into the Word of God as we not only study the life of Andrew, but to seek to extract from that life those principles that may be a great benefit to you and me as we strive like he was to be a person in the service of the Master. And thus the title of the lesson, Andrew, a Man of Service. As you can see on that screen that I placed there, Many of the things that we can learn about those characters in the Bible, in fact, are so easy to appreciate because quite often we can mentally envision walking in their steps. We can visualize being in their position. We maybe can even understand making the mistake that he or she made. But on the other hand, is it not wonderful to appreciate the loyalty and the, devo and the devotion that we may experience when we see the overwhelming victory and the triumph that we feel in the lives of some of those Bible characters. Tonight, with regard to Andrew, we also shall be able to study the same, and may I submit to you that we will fairly begin in this fashion, by first looking at a few of the, what one might call, incidental matters, but in a way the lessons are still in vitally important. In the Gospel according to John, in verses 40, 42, and 44 of John chapter 1, we immediately encounter some specifics relative to the life of this man named Andrew. First, he was the son of a man named Jonah. Secondly, he was the brother of the man named Peter, Simon Peter. But also, we learn that he was born in the city of Bethsaida. As we look at all of those matters and appreciate them somewhat briefly, it is an interesting thing to notice, of course, that Andrew did not choose any of those. He couldn't choose who his father was, his literal father upon earth in the flesh, nor could he choose who his physical brothers in the flesh would be, nor did he have any say in the matter of where he would be born into this world. That fact alone perhaps challenges you and me to realize that those things did not detract Andrew from his service to the Master. They did not present to him an excuse, for instance, whereby he would be deterred from his service to Christ. But rather, despite them perhaps, he was nonetheless a loyal and faithful servant to his Lord. What about you and me today? There are things you and I cannot control either. Like him, we can't control who our parents were. We can't control who our physical brothers and sisters may be. We can't control the city in which our mother gave birth to us. 
there may be many other things that we could selectively list, but the fact is we should not allow them, whatever the tide of them may be, to cause us to be swayed away from faithfulness to the Master. Andrew, with regard to those things, we'll learn shortly, was truly a powerful force in the service of Jesus, and many others were in fact drawn closer to Christ because of him. Perhaps the same thing could be said of, in fact, you and me. Consider some texts of the Bible where others made remarks not unlike that. For instance, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul made reference to himself, he there noted in verses 8, 9, and 10 the following set of ideas. First of all, in verse 8, he affirmed that perhaps as one born out of due time, he was nonetheless a chosen apostle. But not only that, he said, I am the least of all the saints. All of those brethren, as he referred to that listing of the apostles, but he nonetheless said that he had labored more abundantly than they all. We notice that Paul, in his humility, understood the forcefulness and the power of those apostles, and he counted it a tremendous privilege to simply be amongst the number and to have a part in the proclamation of truth. It would seem that Andrew also had that sense of humility about him. As Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2, verse 13, he there even noted that it is the good will and the pleasure of God to accomplish his will in you. Notice that Paul said nothing about the character of when or how one was born or the other nature of his family members. We can learn from Andrew then that we too, whatever those physical matters and circumstances may be, we mustn't allow them to deter us from our loyal devotion to the Master. But in the second place, notice also with me that we rather readily learn from a number of sources in these inspired New Testament documents that Andrew was a fisherman and that he labored in the vicinity of Capernaum. For instance, in Mark 1, verse 29, and Matthew 4, verse 18, those observations, in fact, are made. In fact, it is there told us that Andrew aided his brother Peter as they fished there on the Sea of Galilee. We immediately learn another lesson. Amongst those who in his day and time that would have been those with the highest nobility in the land and the highest degree of pomp and circumstance, Andrew would not have been amongst that number. He was not the central figure in the town, the one to whom everyone looked for the answers to all the questions. He wasn't the one that everyone turned to for the degree of nobility. He wasn't the king of the city. In fact, he apparently was not even in any sense a member of the ruling parliamentary number. That still, though, did not deter him from serving Christ. After all, you might also appreciate with me that though you and I may not be the most noble in the land in the eyes of the world, though we may not be the ones who are looked up to as all the high and mighty ones, that doesn't mean we can't be faithful servants of Jesus, does it? In fact, it might well be the case that we should be thankful for the degree that you and I have because wasn't it true in 1 Corinthians 1 that as Paul gave that inspired description of those that would be Jews or those that would be Greeks, he said the Jews seek after a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Paul said, I preached Christ Jesus and Him crucified, and it was to those Jews a stumbling block, and it was to those Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 20-25. And he later would say in verse 26, that not many mighty, not many wise after this world are called. 
Isn't it true in many instances that those who are sufficiently skilled or blessed with mental talents and capabilities and stature and position in this world often are the least interested in the service to Christ? For they've come to depend upon themselves or they have come to depend upon anything other than God. And therefore, they aren't as receptive to the simple, plain elements of the truth. Andrew was just a fisherman. But that didn't stop him from being a powerful member of those to help bring others to Jesus. Today, the same is true for you and me. We may not be a high governmental official. We may not be one to whom Governor Bredesen will call and beseech my advice. We may not be one that President Bush will ever meet face to face. But that doesn't mean that we cannot impact all eternity by those whom we draw to the Master, by those words that we seek, those nuggets of truth that we drop day by day. It would seem that Andrew was very much a person not unlike that. But in the third place, in addition to these first two observations, consider another one with me if you would. For it's also true concerning Andrew that we learn from that text we read earlier as Jason read that for us in John 1.35, we appreciate the fact that Andrew was an eager disciple of John the Baptist. In fact, in that given text, we read that there were two disciples of John who in fact not only were following him, but actually witnessed and watched as he made reference to the Christ. Amongst those two, one of them was Andrew. One of them was Andrew. We thus immediately learned that Andrew, though a fisherman... And though, as we've noted earlier, that he was not the most mighty or the most noble in the eyes of the world, nonetheless, we see in this man, in Andrew, the simple fact that things physical were not all important to him. He was a follower of John. Things that John had to say not only pressed upon his mind, not only, in fact, led him to understand the greatness of those things he taught, but he was a follower then of John. And he pursued him and in fact strove to do those things that John in fact taught. In John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist there proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When Andrew heard that, what must he have thought? He had been a follower of John the Baptist, and here John tells about one, in fact, this one to whom he spoke, this one of whom he pointed. He, John said, is the one that takes away the world's sin. And Andrew did not argue against that fact. He didn't defend his master at the time and say, John, you are the greatest. Andrew understood that what John had spoken and that which he affirmed relative to Christ was important enough to investigate. And thus John, we are told on that occasion, Andrew followed Jesus. He went to where the Lord stayed that night. He walked with him some distance and listened to him teach. It seems that Andrew had a heart that was so very curious, so very inquisitive, so very interested in the truth. Isn't that fascinating when we consider that you and I are led to understand that same effect concerning our life? Though we may occupy a job and a position in the community, none of those things can rest above in importance our devotion to the Master. In fact, it is through those channels that we can be an even greater service to Jesus as we minister in His cause to those whom we meet day by day. Andrew, it seems, accomplished that so very successfully and also so very powerfully. But notice also yet another 
the enthusiasm with which Andrew followed Jesus is an enthusiasm that is so very compelling. I noted a moment ago that in this text of John 1, we notice that as he followed Jesus, he did so and earnestly and excitedly listened to him preach, listened to those things that Jesus had to say. Can we not then appreciate the fact that that enthusiasm, it seems, spilled over because every time we encounter Andrew in the Scriptures, every time we have mention of his name, we see a person who tried with all his capability to exert influence, not for personal glory, but for the glory of the one who is his master. That was Andrew's highest challenge and charge, and to that he looked forward. Andrew, you see, served with enthusiasm the very master whom he loved. In Matthew 4, verse 18, somewhat later, after that initial introduction that we have of Andrew on that occasion with John the Baptist, there was a time somewhat later when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee and he called Peter and Andrew. The text says they immediately left their nets and followed the Savior. Immediately left their nets. They did not proceed to question, to argue with him. They simply proceeded to immediately leave those nets, the fishing apparatus behind, and thus to follow after the Savior. Do you and I have a life as described with that degree of enthusiasm and with that degree of devotion, leave behind those things that may deter us from serving Jesus and to follow him with immediacy and with also great power and strength? Andrew did, and so too may we. In fact, he serves as a great example for us. Consider the text that I have written in Galatians 2, verse 20. On that occasion, the enthusiasm that we see welled up in the life of Paul to the point that he could even make this statement, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The enthusiasm that Paul felt ultimately would carry him to death. But it was a death for which he was prepared because he had lived in the glory of Christ. And in fact, that same man, Paul, in Philippians 4 verse 4, speaking of enthusiasm, could say, Rejoice all the way in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Though Paul penned those words from a Roman prison, though his circumstances and his environment must have been difficult to say the least, it did not stop Paul's joy, his enthusiasm, and even his admonition of the same for those brethren to whom he wrote. These things indeed about the life of Andrew challenge us to also exemplify many of these same ideas, serving Jesus with enthusiasm despite the physical circumstances over which we have no control. But yet in the fifth place, I would ask that you ponder yet another concept with me as we study this life of Andrew. Consider with me the fact that in John 1, verses 41 and 42, again, that text that we heard a moment ago in our hearing, we notice that on that occasion a very remarkable thought is stated concerning Andrew. Is it not true that he shared the knowledge of Christ? He shared the knowledge of Jesus. On that occasion when in fact he followed Jesus, as we noted earlier, he was so enthusiastic and so overcome with what he had heard that the first individual to whom he went, he couldn't contain the thought of what he now knew. He went and told Peter, we found the Messiah. 
He was so excited. He just had to share that with those whom he loved, and thus it was to his own physical brother in the flesh, Peter, to whom he went and shared the message, Come and see who we found. Come and see who we now know about. Those who were of Jewish origin, for centuries, of course, had enjoyed prophecies in the Old Testament speaking about the coming Jesus. And time and again in the New Testament, we encounter those occasions in which Jesus revealed himself directly to someone. We find Andrew so happy. He now knew about Jesus. He had encountered him and learned from him. He had spoke with him, and thus he just couldn't contain that message within him. And thus he went to share that, in this case, first with his brother. It is a significant thing that it says he first findeth his brother Peter. Sometimes those members of our families, of course, are those whom we love so dearly, those whom we cherish in this life for all that they mean to us. And yet it's also those very ones sometimes that we recognize the powerful desire we have to touch their life with the power of the gospel so that they can come into a knowledge of the truth and obey it, so that they can enjoy the fellowship with God that we have. It would seem that Andrew felt that same earnest desire and that same strong inclination. In fact, could it not be said that in 2 Corinthians 4.13 might that same discussion rest upon your mind and mine? For after all, there when Paul wrote to those Corinthian brethren, he said, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. If you and I believe, we too will speak. If we are convinced of the truth of those matters revealed in the gospel, we too will not be able to hold it within us. The word prophet literally means to bubble forth, and we too will bubble over with the word of God, not being able to constrain it, but rather enjoying the thought of presenting it to those who so desperately need to hear it. That may be our family members, it may be our neighbors, it may be those with whom we work. But we will long for those opportunities and those things that God avails us to where we can simply speak the truth of God. Andrew looked forward to that time and oh, how much good eternally he did. Could we not reflect for a moment that very brother to whom Andrew first shared Jesus and the thought that he was the Messiah was the very one who later would preach the first gospel sermon in Acts 2. He was the very one to whom the Lord gave the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. He was the very one who in John 21 was the one of whom Jesus spoke speaking about the character in which he would later serve, the, the, serve Jesus himself. You see, Peter was certainly a powerful influence in the early church. Andrew, however, had a role to play in him even coming to know Jesus. Perhaps as we reflect upon that, consider yet another one with me. Andrew was a man desirous of understanding. He didn't consider the fact that he already knew everything and that thus there was nothing more to learn. On one occasion in Mark 13, in fact it's such an intriguing scene, as the chapter opens, Jesus had just spoken about the nature of the destruction of the temple and that of Jerusalem. As those in the audience heard what the Savior said, especially in regard to the temple and the fact that not one stone would be left upon another, four of the disciples were so curious that when the Lord reached the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, they came and the text says they privately asked Jesus about the character of what he had just taught. One of those names listed is Andrew. Andrew wanted to know more about what Jesus taught. 
He wanted more details and more information. He wanted more careful consideration of that destruction of the temple, when it would be and the things concerning it. Do we not perhaps learn in that idea the fact that we should be people of, who desire understanding? Those who have an insatiable appetite for the Word of God. Jesus taught, did He not, in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That hungering and that thirsting for the righteousness of God, which righteousness is God's commandments, Psalm 119, verse 172, and thus we learn in all of that the marvelous feature of the earnest pathway through life in which we can grow to maturity. God doesn't expect us at the time we are baptized into Christ to know everything, but rather it is a journey in which we mature day by day, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. That maturity and that growth that we lovingly enjoy is a growth whereby God provides us abilities to study and to learn, be it in Bible classes or in personal daily Bible study. Those opportunities certainly redound into our growth and to our maturity in Christ. Those thoughts are challenging indeed, aren't they? It's no wonder that wise man of old encouraged us in Proverbs 4, verse 7, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Perhaps that brings us full circle in one sense. Andrew was a man desirous of understanding. He wanted to know more about what the Lord taught. Does that characterize my life and yours? Or are we happy to let the Bible accumulate dust while we think we have enough answers? Oh, how regretful we may be on the day of judgment if that's our mental disposition. For none of us have all of the answers, but God does. May we study earnestly and intently and thus learn what He has revealed. For this indeed, as we prayed earlier tonight, is that pathway to heaven. We read in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The wonders of God's word never cease to be amazing as we consider and for a lifetime the joy we have of learning of understanding, and of appropriating those blessings to our life. Andrew was a man who sought understanding. But what about in yet the seventh place? Yet other things that we can state about the life of this one named Andrew. I would ask you to consider with me John chapter 20, or rather John chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. Notice here where another episode from the life of Andrew is revealed. Since the reading is just but three verses, let us read those together. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, which again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Though the scene is a rather brief one, nonetheless a volume of information is revealed. On this occasion there were those who sought to see Jesus. Perhaps they had heard about Him. They had learned from others about the miracles whom He performed. They had become aware of the wonderful and impressive teaching that He had made known. 
as they came to this location, they thus sought Philip. And to Philip they said, we would see Jesus. On that occasion, Philip comes and finds Andrew. Philip, in fact, shares that information with Andrew, and the both of them go and inform the Christ. They inform Jesus about those who were seeking to meet him, those who were wanting to learn from him. We learn there that Philip, as well as Andrew, were instrumental figures in bringing others, in helping others to see Jesus. One of the interesting things I believe that you and I could consider is to ask about my life and yours. Am I a person, are you a person, whom others see as one who can help them see Jesus? If that can be said of my life and yours, that is a remarkable statement. If it can be said of you and me that you and I are those who help others see Jesus, that alone is a gigantic statement. It's true, of course, that others ought to see Jesus exemplified in our life. We ought to reflect his love and the mercy and the truth and grace of God. Paul, in fact, made statements like that, did he not, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15? For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In other words, you and I, as those risen with Christ, should live a life reflecting the love and glory of God to all whom, who know us and who see us. And thus we too should be those who help others see Jesus. We should have those words whereby we can aid to answer the questions that they ask. When someone asks about my faith or yours, are we ready to share with them the truth of God on that subject? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear. 1 Peter 3.15 That is not only a responsibility for you and me, that's a beautiful challenge. That is one way we can help others see Jesus, to reflect to them the eternal truth revealed in the Word. Andrew was one who did that. He helped bring others to Jesus. He reflected to them the character of truth, and as they sought the Lord, it was by his agency they could come to see Jesus. You and I can think of many ways, perhaps other things Andrew might have done by which he accomplished that. But what about you and me? Are there specific ways that you and I can help to make that happen too? Perhaps that smile, that word of encouragement to someone who's in despair. Perhaps that interesting phone call to that person who has just had a tremendously awful event happen in his or her life. It may well be to that family who has been in the position of losing a loved one that that kind word of comfort and consolation, perhaps just the quoting of a Bible verse here or there, a kind smile to a person in need. You see, one could continue that list almost indefinitely. But you see, God has given each of us those talents and those abilities, those means whereby we can help others see Jesus. In the first century, in the book of Acts, we notice how powerfully those brethren did that then. When the church grew by leaps and bounds, they were helping others see Jesus. And when others saw him, they quickly responded positively. It would seem that Andrew aided others to do the same. 
You and I may not always have the positive response we like. Others may not be as eager to follow the Master as we would wish. But nonetheless, we can still try to lead them to Jesus. We can try to show them the Master. And truly, we can appreciate that perhaps the nugget of truth we've dropped may germinate and redound into truthfulness maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even next week, maybe not even next month. But who knows, but what maybe a year from now, someone may arrive at our services and said, you invited me a year ago. It was you who showed a kind thought to me, and I've never forgotten it. And is now the appropriate time when maybe they will be interested more in the truth. Andrew helped others see Jesus. You and I can do that too. Perhaps in the eighth place, the last one that I've chosen to list, perhaps in a way it summarizes all of them. Andrew was a man of service. There is another occasion in which so clearly that is evident. It was on that amazing scene when 5,000 men, not counting women and others who may have been present, were gathered and the Lord was interested in feeding them. You might recall it had become the late time of the day and the disciples in fact encouraged the Lord to send them away so that they could go and acquire food to eat. But Jesus said, give you them to eat. In response, some of the disciples, of course, were somewhat taken aback. We don't have enough to feed them. And in fact, they even argued that it would take 200 penny worth of bread to even attempt to feed them. However, did you ever stop to notice what Andrew was doing in the meantime? The text says that Andrew came and revealed to the Lord, there's a lad here with five loaves and two fishes. Andrew didn't argue with the Lord. Andrew wasn't the one who apparently tried to devise other means to usurp authority over Jesus. He was, in fact, an instrument of service to help the Lord accomplish his will. He had gone and found a lad that had five loaves and two fishes. And it was Andrew who brought word of that finding to Jesus. And wasn't it true that the Lord then gave instruction whereby those were to sit in various companies on the green grass and he proceeded to divide the five loaves and the two fishes and fed the multitude. Andrew was a man of service, instrumental in aiding Jesus to accomplish the will, his will upon earth. My life and yours, again, are we instrumental in accomplishing the Lord's will and aiding that accomplishment to be done? Andrew certainly knew that which Jesus desired, and he wanted thus to be an instrument to aid him in the accomplishment of that feeding of the 5,000. God's will is also revealed, as you and I know, in his word today. Are you and I those who relinquish control of our life to Jesus and thus allow him to say, Lord, do with my life what is needful to accomplish your will. Let me be an humble servant in thy kingdom. That's what we see in the life of Andrew, isn't it? A man of service. One who, again, by way of summary, some things over which he had no control, but that didn't stop him from serving Jesus. An humble fisherman, true indeed, but he nonetheless is an enthusiastic follower of not only John, but later, the Christ as well. We've seen in the feeding of the 5,000 his instrumentality in aiding the accomplishment of the will of Jesus. We've also seen in the events how he brought his own brother Peter news about Jesus, how that he in fact brought the Greeks to Jesus and in fact informed Jesus that all men sought for him. 
these things challenge us to ask, are you and I people of service like Andrew was? Are we those whose life can readily be viewed as one that will bring someone to Jesus? If that's not a descriptive way of putting your life in mind tonight, perhaps there is a strong need to rethink seriously where we stand. Jesus gave everything for you and me. He gave his life upon the cross, shedding his innocent and precious blood. And by that shedding of that blood, he purchased the wonderful body known as the church. That church is the body of the saved, Ephesians 5.23. Are you a member of that body? Have you relinquished control of your life to the one who will safely safeguard it until the day of judgment? If you haven't, obey him at once tonight. Realize you must believe upon him as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, those things that are transgressions of his will. And come humbly confessing with all your heart you believe him to be the Son of God. Once you've done that, someone will aid you simply in burying you beneath water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we call baptism. It's an act which is fraught with so much meaning, fraught with so much significance. It is a reenactment of the very death, burial, and resurrection of our risen Savior, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. We could aid you tonight in becoming a member of His body. For upon your baptism, the Lord adds you to His church, Acts 2, 47. If you have at one point in your life been a member of that blessed body, but you have brought reproach upon it by the way that you've lived, things that you've done, ways in which you've behaved, realize that as long as there's breath within you and the knowledge of conscience that you have, there's still time to make that right. We would be happy to pray on your behalf for you and with you. If either of those things is a need in your life tonight, will you not let that be made known even now while together we stand and while we sing?